November the 18th, 2015. Hamlet's Delay, Freud's Reading and Beyond. Hamlet, both prince and play, is something of an anomaly. Hamlet the prince is an enigma, even or especially to himself. Hamlet the play presents the prince, a tragic protagonist and a revenger who, in his own words, lets sleep my dull revenge, as an irresolvable problem, and consequently the play itself is a problem as a play. For four and a half long acts in this, the longest by far, of all Shakespeare's plays, Hamlet, the tragic protagonist, though very busy, fails to act. He fails to carry through a mission demanded by him, of him by the ghost of his father, and to which he had passionately pledged himself by the end of Act I. As a result, the tragedy of Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, as the folio collected works of 1623 entitles the play, is a tragedy without a unified, driving, tragic action for all the heroic farewells and epitaphs of its final moments. The title of the play in the two earlier quarto editions, that of 1603, the so-called Bad Quarto, and that of 1604, the so-called Good Quarto, was instead not the tragedy, but the tragical history of Hamlet, Prince of Denmark. Is there a generic difference between a tragedy and a tragical history? Is a tragical history one perhaps that doesn't quite add up finally to a tragedy? Instead of the driving dynamic of tragedies such as Macbeth or King Lear or Coriolanus, we have Horatio's busy list of bungles and mishaps that he promises to disclose publicly at Hamlet's funeral obsequies and which are themselves due to take place only after the play's ending. In the closing moments, in one last final postponement, Horatio promises Fortinbras, So shall you hear of carnal, bloody and unnatural acts, of accidental judgments, casual slaughters, of deaths put on by cunning and forced cause, and in this upshot, purposes mistook, fallen on the inventor's heads. Rather than a unified tragic action, Horatio promises to describe a catalogue of failed actions, of accidents and disasters, of accidental judgments and purposes mistook. Furthermore, Horatio urges the rapid establishment of Fortinbras' new regime, quote, lest more mischance on plots and errors happen, perhaps Horatio feels that another round of casual slaughters might well finish off the remaining survivors. Osric, Fortinbras and the English ambassador who wanders in at the very last moment with the cheerful news that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. A great line, wonderful in its redundancy and of course a gift to Tom Stoppard. Of course Hamlet does finally get his man. He reacts immediately and violently to the violence that has been done to him in the final scene of the duel. In a return to sender, Hamlet stabs Claudius with a very envenomed sword that had been used against him, and he forces the poisoned wine Claudius had intended for him down Claudius's own throat. Hamlet has always been good at rapid reaction behaviour under the pressure of events, sending Rosencrass and Guildenstern to their deaths, stabbing whoever is lurking behind the arras in his mother's bedchamber, it turns out to be the wrong man, Polonius, leaping aboard the pirate ship, leaping into Ophelia's grave to confront Laertes. A good man in an emergency, Hamlet seizing the initiative, however, is essentially reactive, that is, a reaction to the initiatives of others towards him. With one exception, the putting on of the play of the murder of Gonzago before the king, Hamlet is reactive rather than proactive throughout. So he dies poisoned by the very man who had poisoned his father, as Freud points out, and furthermore he dies in danger of taking with him to the grave his knowledge of Claudius's secret crimes and Gertrude's adultery. 
Sir Francis Bacon, Shakespeare's contemporary, in his much-quoted essay of Revenge of 1623, wrote, Revenge is a kind of wild justice. The most tolerable sort of revenge is for those wrongs for which there is no law to remedy. Those wrongs for which there is no law to remedy. Bacon argues that only that revenge is defensible where the crime is beyond the law and which is a public and open revenge. For justice to be done, it must be seen to be done. A justified revenge, if it is to be more than a private and vindictive tit-for-tat, is a public calling of the criminal to account and to punishment when the law itself cannot do so. So Hamlet's last-minute killing of Claudius fails to make his death a matter of justice, however wild, because it has not been explained and justified in public. Hamlet himself is aware of this, which is why he struggles to prevent his friend Horatio from committing a stoic suicide like an antique Roman. Quote, O God, Horatio, what a wounded name thing standing thus unknown shall live behind me. If thou didst ever hold me in thy heart, absent thee from felicity a while, and in this harsh world draw thy breath in pain to tell my story. Hamlet's final request to Horatio is to tell my story. His killing of Claudius on the rebound in the duel scene is not enough for a justifiable and proportionate revenge. A, a story must be told which makes sense of Hamlet's regicide, which exposes Claudius's crimes, and which brings satisfaction to the perturbed spirit of his murdered father. However, such a story, Hamlet's story, is never told in the public space of Elsinore during the time of the play. Even at the play's bungled close, the ghost has yet to receive any public justice, wild or otherwise. Indeed, both Hamlet and his play seem to have forgotten the ghost entirely by the final scene. There is to be no sigh of satisfaction from the old mole under the stage when his murderous brother Claudius breathes his last. Now, some critics have dismissed this as a non-problem. For example, Jonathan Bate, the editor of the recent RSC edition of The Complete Works. Uh, they have minimised or just ignored Hamlet's failure to act to plan, to initiate a revenge plot that the genre of the revenge play requires. However, Hamlet's inaction is clearly a problem for Hamlet himself, who rebukes himself passionately for his failure to act on at least three separate occasions. First of all, we find him doing this already by the end of Act Two, in the concluding soliloquy after the player's speech about the killing of King Priam of Troy by Pyrrhus, and the grief of Hecuba, Act 2, Scene 2. Hamlet contrasts himself with the emotional eloquence of the player, who breaks down in tears over the death of Priam, and in sympathy with the grief of the long-dead Hecuba, Queen of Troy. He reproaches himself for his inability to expose and denounce Claudius in public, his failure, quote, to cleave the general ear with horrid speech, make mad the guilty and appall the free. Despite being the son of a dear father murdered, prompted to my revenge by heaven and hell, he can only denounce himself to himself for cowardice, when he clearly isn't a coward, and in the privacy of his, privacy of his soliloquy, only rant and rage against Claudius. Bloody, bawdy villain, remorseless, treacherous, lecherous, kindless villain. Oh, vengeance! As Hamlet well knows, these head-banging repetitions are merely a series of impotent verbal assaults on Claudius delivered in private, a momentary rhetorical tantrum for which he goes on to denounce himself as a whore who must unpack my heart with words. Yet characteristically, he ends the soliloquy by deciding not to organise a plot like the genre's other revenges, with Horatio and the others who have seen the ghost, to bring the criminal Claudius to justice, but instead to put on a play. A second moment of guilty self-reproach occurs in the closet scene with Gertrude, Act 3, Scene 4. In the midst of a paroxysm of denunciation of Claudius to his mother, a murderer, a villain, a king of shreds and patches, Hamlet is suddenly interrupted 
by the reappearance of the ghost. Instantly, he changes tack and anticipates the ghost's reproach to him. Do you not come, your tardy son to chide, that, lapsed in time and passion, lets go by the important acting of your dread command? Oh, say! Unless we might be thinking that this is just a neurotic self-accusation of Hamlet's without any foundation, we then have the ghost precisely chide his tardy son and reiterate his original command to remember me. Do not forget This visitation is but to whet thy almost blunted purpose. So this is not just a question of Hamlet's melancholic self-loathing, but an agreement between dead father and living son that Hamlet has failed so far to implement what he calls the important acting of your dread command. In other words, Hamlet's delay is established as a dramatic reality, not just something we as readers or audience, might infer by puzzling over the ambiguous chronology of the play's events. The third moment I want to discuss is the last of Hamlet's soliloquies, where he contrasts himself, not as in Act Two, with the player weeping with Hecuba over the death of Priam, but the figure of young Fortinbras, the Norwegian prince, leading his army against Poland in order to wage war and vindicate his honour over a worthless scrap of ground. This short scene, which is traditionally numbered as Act 4, Scene 4, plays a significant role in the two-part structure of the play. Unfortunately, this has been obscured by the traditional act divisions that we have inherited from the 18th century editor Rowe, and which are not Shakespeare's. Rowe cuts the play at the end of the scene in Gertrude's closet that I have just briefly discussed by ending Act 3 at this point. This interrupts the run of brief scenes that follow on directly and immediately from the closet scene and that deal with the immediate aftermath of Hamlet's killing of Polonius and hiding his body, his virtual arrest and his sending off to England, all of which form a sequence. Emerus Jones in his book Scenic Form in Shakespeare makes the persuasive argument that Act 3 needs to continue till this plot sequence is concluded with Hamlet's going into exile. Only then do we get a natural break where an interval might appear between the play's first, very long, three-act movement that goes from the ghost's first appearance on the battlements of Elsinore to Hamlet's last soliloquy as he goes into exile, on the one hand, and on the other hand it's its shorter second movement which begins with the madness of Ophelia and centres on the return first of Laertes, and then of Hamlet to Denmark, and to their fatal duel. Hamlet's soliloquy at this pausing point at the end of its first movement is provoked by the brief appearance of Fortinbras and his army passing over the stage. The soliloquy was cut from the first folio collected works of 1623, and it appears only in the good quarto of 1604. As Emrys Jones points out, allowing the end of Act 3 to conclude the play's first movement at this point uh, makes visible the structural rhyme Shakespeare had arranged between the endings of the play's two movements. So the first movement must end with this scene of Hamlet's soliloquy and the passage of Fortinbras. This is a structural rhyme between the ending of this, this first movement, where Fortinbras appears briefly followed by Hamlet, who only just misses him on stage, and the play's second movement, which also ends with the arrival of Fortinbras on stage, who only just misses Hamlet, who has just died. So young Hamlet and young Fortinbras never actually meet. Consequently, the sudden appearance of Fortinbras the warrior end-stops the play's two parts, and he provides a striking contrast with the central figure of Hamlet. Shakespeare, in effect, makes Fortinbras a structural feature of the play's organisation, and Hamlet thematizes the contrast between them as two revenging sons in his final soliloquy. Hamlet's soliloquy is, then, a key punctuation point in the progress of the play, and it turns on and repeats, yet once more, Hamlet's bafflement at his own inability to carry out the acting of his ghostly father's dread command. 
how all occasions do inform against me and spur my dull revenge. Now, whether it be bestial oblivion or some craven scruple of thinking too precisely on the event, I do not know why I yet live to say this thing's to do. Sith, I have cause and will and strength and means to do it. How stand I then, that have a father killed, a mother stained, excitements of my reason and my blood, and let all sleep, while to my shame I see the imminent deaths of twenty thousand men that for a fantasy and trick of fame go to their graves like beds. Hamlet's self-bafflement is obvious here in the fact that it isn't clear in his own mind whether he has been guilty of thinking too much about the revenge he is committed to, thinking too precisely on the event, or whether he is not thinking about it at all and has forgotten about it, bestial oblivion. The trajectory of the play's first movement emerges very clearly here, for the appearance of the ghost in Act One, with his ferocious demand on his son for remembrance and revenge, to Hamlet's going into exile, his mission still unaccomplished. We might well ask exactly what has Hamlet managed to achieve at this relatively late turning point in the play. Well, he has managed to draw attention and suspicion to himself through his antic disposition to put on a play that is broken halfway through due to the effects on Claudius of his obtrusive running commentary on the inner play's action. He has managed to refuse a golden opportunity of running Claudius through while the latter, kneeling with his back to Hamlet, is trying and failing to pray. He has killed the wrong man, Polonius instead of Claudius, and finally he gets himself forcibly sent abroad with fiery quickness, as Claudius puts it, and with a secret execution order hanging over him. So, understandably, in this last soliloquy, Hamlet's self-bafflement and sense of failure is very strongly marked. The contrast with Fortinbras enforces Hamlet's failure, both at this turning point and in its echo of the very first description of Fortinbras in the opening scene of the play. There he was described as the angry warrior's son, whose name means strong arm, seeking to redeem the defeat of his father, old Fortinbras, at the hands of old Hamlet, and to regain the lands his father had forfeited to Denmark. So, young Hamlet, old Hamlet, Young Fortinbras, old Fortinbras. The contrast is made pointedly three times. First in the opening court scene, where Claudius has to send ambassadors to Norway, complaining of Fortinbras' aggressive behaviour. Then at the structural turning point, where Act 3 should end, where Fortinbras is crossing Danish territory to invade Poland. And finally, at the conclusion of the play, where Fortinbras arrives in Elsinore just in time to claim the Danish throne as his. A similar contrast is engineered in the second movement of the play, this time with Laertes rather than Fortinbras. Laertes returns angrily to Denmark with Le- um, from Paris on the news of his father's death and seems no sooner to have set his foot on Danish soil than he has roused an angry mob who are calling for Laertes to be king, no less, stormed the palace, overcome the royal guard of Switzers and has Claudius at his mercy defended comically only by the redoubtable Gertrude, who appears to pounce on Laertes. Let him go, Gertrude, Claudius orders her. Indeed, the whole of the second part of the play is organised around a rivalry and contrast between Laertes and Hamlet on their respective returns to Denmark. But this is a contrast in which Hamlet's situation as the son of a murdered father who seeks to revenge him is both mirrored and reversed with geometrical precision by the situation of Laertes, as Hamlet himself admits to Horatio, quote, for by the image of my cause I see the portraiture of his. The difference between them is that where Hamlet was the would-be revenging son in the first part of the play, he has now become the secret murderer of the father figure and the object of Laertes' filial revenge in the second part. However, the contrast between them that I want to emphasise here suggests how relatively easy it is for a gung-ho, determined and angry son bent on revenging his father's death to raise the necessary forces to take Claudius by surprise and call him to account. This contrast might lead us to wonder just how much more readily might this have been done by the popular Prince Hamlet 
son of the late King Hamlet. The play frames Hamlet then with both Laertes and Fortinbras as two contrasting figures, a pair of sons determined and effective in using armed force to vindicate their dead fathers, and it does so in order to dramatise the anomaly of Hamlet's paralysed inaction. This mystery of Hamlet's inaction is both articulated self-consciously by Hamlet himself in the two soliloquies I've looked at briefly in 2.2 and 3.4, and it is confirmed by the ghost's rebuke to him about his almost blunted purpose. And it is enforced by a pair of systematic contrasts with Laertes and Fortinbras, those other proactive sons of dead and dishonoured fathers. What Hamlet calls the heart of my mystery when defending himself against Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and their attempt to pry into his feelings and intentions, can indeed be seen as a dimension of Hamlet himself, as a personal problem, a personal enigma. But before I explore this, I want to consider the way that indirection, detour, proliferation and compulsive postponement mark the formal aesthetic character of the play as a whole. They are not just a feature of Hamlet's personal psychology and behaviour, though they are that. If Hamlet delays his revenge in chronological time, it is important to note that the play delays Hamlet in dramatic time. The play proliferates scenes, speeches, interactions, intrigues and minor characters that either don't involve Hamlet at all, or in which he is the targeted object, not the active subject. If Hamlet postpones and delays the acting of his father's dread command, it is equally the case that the play itself, in dramatic time, diverts, detours around and delays Hamlet as a presence on stage. Think how, in cinema, a film can present what is a very brief act or a short moment of time, chronologically, but can do so in a way that delays and prolongs it. The camera can go into slow motion, into replay or flashback, or indeed flash-forward, lingering over or detouring around a very small piece of plot so as to delay it and elaborate it and draw it out in cinematic time. Similarly, in literary fiction, we can make a formal distinction between the chronological time of the plot material and the time of its narration. So, as well as Hamlet's delay existing at the level of the plot, delay takes place in dramatic time as well, at the level of the play's theatrical articulation of the Hamlet story. This, the longest of Shakespeare's plays, delays us, the audience, and draws out almost unbearably our expectations. It retards our movement through the plot with more and more minor characters, such as Reynaldo and the verbally diarrheic Osric, with interminable conversations when we were hoping for action, with long speeches on set topics, Hamlet's verse essay on the Dram of Eel in Act 1, or Rosencrantz's unwanted lecture on the Cease of Majesty in Act 4, with Polonius's elaborate and self-entangling syntax, and with the generation of unstoppable subordinate clauses in almost every verse speaker in the play. In fact, at the micro-level of the text, delay is written into the very DNA of Shakespeare's play, along with detour and proliferation, the logical complements of the play's strategies of postponement. Take, for take the example of Hamlet, coming across Claudius, kneeling unguarded in his closet, Act 3, Scene 3, immediately after the play within the play. Hamlet takes out his sword to dispatch Claudius, and then, unbelievably but somehow predictably, Hamlet decides not to kill him on the theologically dubious presumption that he will go to heaven because he is at prayer. This is, of course, Hamlet's own decision to let go by this golden opportunity and to postpone his act of revenge. However, it is the play, or Shakespeare, who has Claudius then rise from his knees the very moment Hamlet leaves the stage, to declare that he can't pray after all because he still enjoys the benefits of his crime, his queen and his crown. Quote, my words fly up, my thoughts remain below, words without thoughts never to heaven go. Hamlet mistakes his most opportune moment 
which any revenger would give his eye teeth for, not only to kill Claudius, but to send him, unrepentant, to hell. The play offers Hamlet this golden opportunity to perform his act of revenge, but then, teasingly, withdraws it from him. It hides Claudius's failure of repentance behind the kneeling posture of prayer. Both Hamlet and equally his play, one might feel, never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Indeed, the very principle of indirection, detour and compulsive postponement takes the form of, becomes embodied in an entire character, in the endlessly scheming, myopically spying and unstoppably loquacious Polonius, who gets lost in the tangled thickets of his own sentences. By indirection, finding direction out, but never quite getting there. However, this is a compulsion that infects the whole play, right down to the rhetorical patterns and style of its speeches, no matter who is speaking. Claudius himself can't take a drink of wine without organising a 21-gun salute, bouncing his importance off the nearest rock face, as Wilbur Sanders memorably put it, in a cascade of repeating and redoubling echoes. No jocund health that Denmark drinks today, but the great cannon to the clouds shall tell, and the king's rouse the heavens shall brute again, re-speaking earthly thunder. Re-speaking, redoubling, re-echoing, self-replicating, the play is taken over by an aesthetic, perhaps one should say an aesthetic pathology, of verbal proliferation and rhetorical redoubling, which is the reverse side of its strategies of postponement and the deferral of action. The proliferation of figures of speech and subordinate clauses that postpone the main verb, the doing verb, of each sentence is everywhere in the play, and it's not for nothing that the play's favourite rhetorical figure is Hendiades, H-E-N-D-I-A-D-Y-S. The Greeks called this figure of speech one thing by two, and Puttenham, the Elizabethan rhetorician, called it twinning. Some examples. In the gross and scope of my opinion, this post-haste and roamage in the land, in the most high and palmy state of Rome, in the morn and liquid dew of youth, these but the trappings and the suits of woe, bend you to remain here in the cheer and comfort of our eye, the expectancy and rose of the fair state. While Ophelia, in a triumph of Hamlet speak, stretches this from a twinning to a tripling, the courtiers, soldiers, scholars, eye, tongue, sword. Indeed, I am sometimes haunted by the impression that it is not so much Shakespeare but Polonius who is the secret author of Hamlet, or, at least, that Shakespeare was getting in touch with his own inner Polonius, when Gertrude, in the middle of her poignant and lyrical set piece on the death of Ophelia, stops to bestow on us perhaps rather more botanical information than we might think we need on this sad occasion. For the flowers that Ophelia was gathering before she died, Gertrude tells us, were... I quote, crowflowers, nettles, daisies, and long purples that liberal shepherds give a grosser name, but our cold maids do dead men's fingers call them. Long purples? Dead men's fingers? Of course, our minds are immediately set racing, wondering which of the dead men's body parts other than fingers those liberal shepherds might have been naming so grossly. And why Gertrude, or Shakespeare, or is it Polonius, feels it necessary at this point to send our thoughts shooting off in that particular direction? While it is clearly the case that, even after his death, the spirit of Polonius still presides over the scripting of Hamlet's terminally tiresome and redundant conversation with Osric in the final scene. However, for all the play's retardation of the dramatic sequence of actions that might lead to the fulfilment of the ghost's demand for revenge, and for all its proliferation of scenes, figures and alternative activities, its focus is on Hamlet and his puzzling inaction. This anomaly has been explained by some commentators in historicist terms and by others as a problem of Hamlet's personal psychology. One, vision, one version of this historicist argument is that Hamlet is a university-educated Renaissance intellectual 
whose philosophical soliloquies show affinities with Montaigne, and who is confronted with an archaic demand for blood revenge that belongs to an earlier, cruder, feudal warrior social order, which his sensitivity and humanist cultural formation has made him unsuited to and unable to carry out. My problem with this explanation is that at no point does Hamlet ever venture on an ethical critique of the demand for revenge. Indeed, he has no moral problem, in principle, with carrying out a murderous revenge on Claudius, and he is as quick as any of the other sword-carrying young men, Fortinbras and Laertes, to stick some metal into anyone whom he takes to be a mortal enemy, such as Polonius behind the arras, Laertes in the duel, and at last, even, Claudius himself in the final bloodbath. It's not that Hamlet can't kill his enemies, it's that he doesn't premeditatedly, proactively plan and carry out the revenge killing of his one major enemy, the one in particular whom his father had revealed as his murderer, the very man who had also seduced and then married his mother. This is not because he is opposed to revenge. Indeed, he does revenge speak quite robustly, moving in and out of the traditional revenger's idiom on a number of occasions. Quote, now could I drink hot blood and do such bitter business as the day could quake to look on. This comes after Hamlet has settled his supposed doubts about the ghost, doubts that have only appeared rather late in the play, at the end of Act Two, in the final lines of his soliloquy, like a retrospective rationalisation for his desire to put on the play The Murder of Gonzago before Claudius. The important thing to note is that for all the confirmation of guilt that Hamlet claims to derive from Claudius's angry exit from the play within the play, in the very next scene, within minutes of dramatic time, he comes across the unguarded kneeling Claudius, takes out his sword, and then decides to postpone his revenge for some other time and place. This makes it clear, I would argue, that Hamlet's behaviour is governed by no consistent rational plan, such as testing the ghost, or having ethical qualms about revenge. But there is a pattern in Hamlet's passions and his inhibitions. However, it's not a pattern that he himself can grasp. Of the psychological commentators on Hamlet, it is Freud, I want to suggest, whose comments in a famous passage from the Interpretation of Dreams, chapter 5, throw some light on the patterns of repetition in which Hamlet is caught up. Freud contrasts Shakespeare's Hamlet with Sophocles' Oedipus, arguing that in the ancient Greek drama, the fantasy of murdering the father and taking his place with the mother is literally, if unwittingly, acted out by Oedipus, whereas in Hamlet, such an Oedipal fantasy is only present negatively, that is, we can detect its presence only through Hamlet's inhibitions, what he fails to do. Freud notes, quote, The plot of the drama, however, shows us that Hamlet is far from being represented as a character incapable of taking any action. We see him doing so on two occasions. And he asks, What is it, then, that inhibits Hamlet in fulfilling the task set him by his father's ghost? The answer, once again, is that it is the peculiar nature of the task. Hamlet is able to do anything except take vengeance upon the man who did away with his father and took that father's place with his mother, the man who shows him the repressed desires of his own childhood realised. Thus the loathing that should drive him on to revenge is replaced in him by self-reproaches, by scruples of conscience, which remind him that he himself is literally no better than the sinner whom he is to punish. Here I have translated into conscious terms what was bound to remain unconscious in Hamlet's mind. Thus Freud. Although it had been ignored by most commentators on Hamlet, Freud's insight directs us to the structural position that Claudius and only Claudius occupies. He is indeed the one man who has killed the father and taken the father's place with the mother. Implicit in Freud's argument is the link between Claudius and Hamlet, what I will call a negative identification, my phrase, not Freud's. 
that establishes a powerful and very specific inhibition which disables Hamlet from acting against Claudius, his proxy and substitute. It also helps to explain his unmotivated self-loathing through its connection with his loathing for Claudius, which has been turned on himself. Now, there is some quite powerful evidence in the play that would support something like Freud's argument. The most obvious is Hamlet's relation to his mother Gertrude, which Freud unaccountably ignores. Most audiences and readers, I would imagine, have felt from Hamlet's first scene his powerful anger with Gertrude. His anger has an obsessional quality because there is something more to it than Hamlet's perfectly justified objection to the haste with which Gertrude has married her brother-in-law, the new king, and the bland religiosity with which she urges Hamlet to stop mourning and, like her, to forget his father. Thou knowest is common, all that lives must die, passing through nature to eternity. The extra dimension that makes Hamlet's anger more than it seems is his intense preoccupation with his mother's sexuality. Where old Hamlet is praised for his tenderness towards his wife Gertrude, it's hard not to feel that there is something both greedy and clinging in Hamlet's description of his mother's desire for his father. <clears throat> Heaven and earth, must I remember it? Why, she would hang on him, as if increase of appetite had grown by what it fed on. This becomes an open erotic hatred when her coupling with Claudius is described, as it is on more than one occasion. Here it is addressed directly to Gertrude herself in the closet scene. Nay, but to live in the rank sweat of an ensemed bed, stewed in corruption, honeying and making love over the nasty sty, like two pigs on heat and rutting. Sniffing the maternal sheets, Hamlet's incestuous obsessions have never seemed more gross and palpable. Hamlet's disgust with what he imagines Claudius does with Gertrude between those incestuous sheets is so detailed and so intrusive. Let the bloat king tempt you to bed and let him for a pair of reachy kisses or paddling in your neck with his damned fingers. It betrays a demented possessiveness about his mother. Not only the disgust, but also the possessiveness is then displaced across onto poor Ophelia. We can see this in the graveyard scene when the sight of Laertes leaping into Ophelia's grave and embracing her body provokes a jealous and competitive rage and possessiveness in Hamlet. I loved Ophelia. Forty thousand brothers could not, with all their quantity of love, make up my sum. Now, psychoanalytic reflection might suggest that if something to which one is pledged, Hamlet's act of revenge, for instance, is postponed when even the perfect opportunity for it arises, or if it is simply not acted on and other things proliferate in its place, then one must interrogate these displacement activities in order to find out what is producing the paralysis and diversion of energies. If we ask ourselves, between the end of Act 1, where he pledges himself to remember and to revenge his father's murder, and swears his companions to secrecy, and Act 4, when he is sent into exile, what has Hamlet been doing? The answer, in theatrical terms, is quite a lot. He's scarcely been off stage. He has frightened Ophelia in her closet, off stage. He has elaborated his antic disposition, gained quite a reputation in Elsinore as, a disturb, as disturbed and disturbing, and as a result become the dominant topic of conversation. There are eight different scenes in the play, eight, where Claudius, Polonius, Laertes, Gertrude, Ophelia, and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, in various combinations come together to discuss the problem of Hamlet, to interpret his behaviour and his motives, to explain his apparent madness, Hamlet's transformation, Hamlet's lunacy, my too much changed son, these have become the hot topics of the moment. He has become indeed the observed of all observers, in Ophelia's phrase, the disgust of all discussions. The first Hamlet 
seminar ever takes place in Elsinore. Now, when Hamlet's prototype character in Saxo Grammaticus, the ancient Danish source for Shakespeare's play, one Amleth, adopts a disguise of madness, it is because his uncle had openly murdered his father, and he has to pretend to be feeble-minded and unthreatening, not worth killing. By contrast, Shakespeare's Hamlet has succeeded in making himself an object of suspicion to Claudius, who comes to fear, quote, something in his soul on which his melancholy sits on brood. Even the slow-witted Guildenstern has worked out that Hamlet's is a crafty madness, strategically deployed. Where the standard politic revenger in Elizabethan and Jacobean revenge tragedy would seek to blend into the background and ingratiate himself with his intended victim, instead Hamlet behaves provocatively, repeatedly signalling his hostility to Claudius. Indeed, a substantial amount of Hamlet's energy and dramatic time is taken up in the playing out of his supposed madness, and it would seem to be drawing Hamlet away from the organisation of a plot or intrigue that would lead to the punishment and exposure of Claudius. Indeed, Hamlet's antic disposition seems to function as a substitute for the action of revenge. While we also see Hamlet in the throes of two lengthy and introspective soliloquies, nevertheless, his most extended preoccupation is with the players, greeting them, talking with them, giving them advice. He recalls in one particular play they had put on in the past a, a, a speech in it which I chiefly loved, the lengthy Troy speech with Priam and Hecuba and Pyrrhus, Priam's killer, which he then passes on to the player to complete. Taking up even more dramatic time is Hamlet's putting on of the play The Murder of Gonzago, along with his detailed advice to the players on what they should strive for and what to avoid in their acting. Indeed, Hamlet even writes an extra speech to be inserted into the play, while during its performance he keeps up a running commentary, so obtrusively underlining its loaded references to both Gertrude and Claudius, that Ophelia comments dryly, you are as good as a chorus, my lord. The whole long theatrical sequence in Act 2, Scene 2 and Act 3, Scene 2 shows Hamlet at his most proactive, organising and making something happen for the first time in a way he doesn't do anywhere else in the play, the putting on, the acting out of two theatrical fictions. <coughs> Hamlet's passionate implication in these two imagined situations is obvious. Both of them have centre stage the figure of a killer. Pyrrhus, the blood-covered killing machine who slaughters old grandsire Priam as the towers of Troy come crashing down around him, and the murderer Lucianus who pours poison into the ear of the old player king as he sleeps in his orchard. It's also fairly obvious that in their different ways, both these stories echo in displaced and disguised form the killing of old King Hamlet by Claudius. Both Pyrrhus and Lucianus are king killers, that is to say, are Claudius figures. Pyrrhus, the killer of the father king Priam, and Lucianus, who poisons the player king through the ear, just as Claudius had done. However, the complication is that Pyrrhus is also a revenging son who kills Priam to avenge the death of his own father Achilles who was killed by Priam's son Paris during the siege of Troy. While Hamlet shouts across the play to Claudius as Lucianus enters, This is one, Lucianus, nephew to the king. A poisons him me the garden for his estate. You shall see anon how the murderer gets the love of Gonzago's wife. Hamlet's aggressive voiceover commentary clearly signals a threat to Claudius. I know your secret, how you killed my father, but also I'm the nephew who is going to kill you. In response to Hamlet's implied threats, Claudius promptly rises and flees the scene. In other words, the figure of Lucianus in the inner play represents and conflates both Claudius, the poisoner in the ear, and Hamlet, his revenging nephew. 
Similarly, Pyrrhus, the regicide, at the point of his butchering the old king Priam, is suddenly arrested, paralysed by the sound of the towers of Troy crashing down, which, quote, take prisoner Pyrrhus's ear, who, like Hamlet, is then unable to act. Momentarily, Pyrrhus's pause, as it is called, mirrors Hamlet's delay. In both these figures of Pyrrhus and Lucianus, there is then a fusion and a confusion of Hamlet and Claudius, the revenger and the criminal. Hamlet's attraction to these narratives, he actually wants to reenact them with their fusion of contradictory or opposed figures, as in dreams, suggests an unconscious, unacknowledged and hostile identification between Hamlet and his loathed antagonist, Claudius. This is precisely the negative identification between them that Freud's analysis implicitly points to. Such an identification leads to the combination of emotional obsession and paralysed inaction that we see in Hamlet. However, for all the light that Freud's brief comments can throw on the enigma of Hamlet, it's important to note that they explain Hamlet's failure to act on his father's dread command entirely in terms of his relation to his uncle Claudius. Freud has nothing to say about Hamlet's relation to his father, in particular to the spectral figure of his father's ghost who lays the duty of revenge upon him. It is rather surprising for Freud of all thinkers to ignore the figure of the father and in this play of all plays with its three father-son couples. So I want to turn to the scenes in Act 1 where Hamlet encounters his father's ghost and to suggest that this constitutes in fact a traumatic encounter, one whose consequences ripple traumatically throughout the play. On his first appearance in Act 1, Scene 1, the ghost is formally, almost ritually, interrogated by Horatio. Thou art a scholar, speak to it, Horatio, <coughs> Bernardo urges, to establish whether it is a benign ghost asking for some good thing to be done, a prophetic ghost with a warning for Denmark about the future, or a guilty ghost haunting a place of buried treasure. The ghost refuses to answer Horatio, and in one Act 1, Scene 4, on the ghost's appearance to him, Hamlet begins with the same or similar questions. Is the ghost from heaven or hell, charitable or wicked in its intents? However, he very quickly comes to the conclusion, I'll call thee Hamlet, king, father, royal Dane. In other words, Hamlet rapidly and confidently recognises the ghost as his father, and his urgent questions thereafter take the ghost's identity for granted. When in Act 1, Scene 5, they adjourn to a more removed ground, the ghost then reveals his status and where he comes from. It is neither from heaven nor hell, but a third location, where he is, in his own words, doomed for a certain term to walk the night, and for the day confined to fast in fires, till the foul crimes done in my days of nature are burnt and purged away. <coughs> In other words, the ghost is confined temporarily to a place that in medieval Catholic tradition was called purgatory, but which can't be named as such on the Elizabethan stage. This was because it was abolished by the Protestant Reformation and virtually by Act of Parliament when all the chantries and specially funded uh, chapels with their provisions for the saying of requiem, requiem masses for the dead in, uh, in purgatory were expropriated by the state under Henry VIII. It is one of the unexplained anomalies of the play that Hamlet and Horatio, students at the University of Wittenberg, which was Martin Luther's university, a centre of international Protestantism in the 16th century, should, in coming home to Denmark, meet up with a Catholic ghost from purgatory. It was, after all, precisely with his rejection of the doctrine of purgatory that Luther began the break from Rome that led to the Reformation. Entire books have been written about this, most recently Stephen Greenblatt's fascinating study, Hamlet in Purgatory. As its name suggests, purgatory was a temporary place of purging, where sins that had not been confessed, or for which penance had not been performed, were purged away by fire. 
So the ghost tells his son that he was murdered by his brother without any preparation for death. For he was, quote, cut off in the blossom of my sins, unhouseled, disappointed, unannealed, no reckoning made, but sent to my account with all my imperfections on my head. Oh, horrible, oh, horrible, most horrible. The three technical terms used here, unhouseled, disappointed, unannealed, refer to the three sacraments that Catholic tradition requires the dying person to receive. Hamlet Sr. was unhouseled because he had not received Holy Communion. The housel was the consecrated bread or wafer. He was disappointed, i.e. not properly appointed because he had not made confession and received absolution for his sins. And he was unannealed because he had not received the final anointing of the seventh of the seven Catholic sacraments called extreme unction. A metaphor of purging by fire had over the centuries in the Western Church turned into a literal place of burning and bodily pain. The more hardline theologians and preachers of the medieval church had insisted it was as bad as hell, only temporary. Indeed, the souls of the dead could have their sojourn there reduced by the prayers of the living, by requiem masses said for them. Even Henry VIII, who expropriated all the chapels and chanteries, founded to pray for the souls in purgatory, left money to have masses said for himself after death. Theology aside, I will simply observe that this third place between heaven and hell that remains unnamed in the play, but whose function is signalled by the verb purged, solves a theatrical problem for Shakespeare. For if the ghost had come from hell, his command should definitely not be obeyed, as he would be damned. If he came from heaven, he would not be demanding this archaic but still prevalent practice of blood revenge. In other words, location in a third place saves the ghost from damnation and discredit and gives him the dramatic space to embody the call of ancestral obligation and for Hamlet to act his filial duty. Furthermore, what could be a more striking expression of the play's aesthetic of postponement? The Catholic doctrine of purgatory is the play's ultimate state of delay, the deferral of the soul's final entry into heaven until purging, penance and remorse for sin had been completed. Shakespeare brings together two ideas here in the ghost's speech. The ancient idea of a ghost that walks because there is unfinished business, his life must be properly completed before he can be laid finally to rest. This is combined with the Catholic idea of purgatory as a third state between heaven and hell, where the soul is in a state not of damnation, but of suffering suspension, and where its accession to a final destiny in heaven is indefinitely postponed. The principle of delay reigns supreme throughout the play, from the ubiquitous rhetorical trope of Hendiades to its ultimate metaphysical expression in the state of purgatory. What I want to draw your attention to is the way the ghost ends the discussion of his exact location by saying that he is forbidden to disclose the secrets of his prison house to ears of flesh and blood. Otherwise, quote, I could a tale unfold whose lightest word would harrow up thy soul, freeze thy young blood, make thy two eyes like stars start from their spheres, thy knotted and combined locks to part, and each particular hair to stand on end like quills upon the fretful porpentine. But this eternal blazon must not be to ears of flesh and blood. The ghost here engages in a rhetorical strategy that is called a perfasis, in which your speaker mentions something by saying he will not mention it, or paralipsis, which invokes a topic but denying that it should be invoked. He says he could but won't do something, but in saying so, does it. Through, through the rhetorical trope of paralipsis, he exercises obliquely the power of what I will call traumatic speech. A traumatic speech whose lightest word, he tells Hamlet, can provoke freezing blood, starting eyes, standing hair in its recipient. That is, it can push the body into extreme spasm and take over and derange the bodily processes of his listener. 
he withholds the secret of his prison house, but the sensory power of this description of their potential devastating effects on a listener itself begins to induce in Hamlet the very effects he warns against. However, it's when he goes on to describe to his son what his brother Claudius did to him, evoking the poisoning in such an intimate and detailed a way, that he relives the poisoning once again, and so transmits it and its effects to Hamlet. Sleeping within my orchard, my custom always of the afternoon, upon my secure hour thy uncle stole, with juice of cursed habanon in a vial, and in the porches of my ears did pour the leprous distilment, whose effect holds such an enmity with blood of man that swift as quicksilver it courses through the natural gates and alleys of the body, and with a sudden vigour doth posset and curd, like eager droppings into milk, the thin and wholesome blood. So did it mine, and a most instant tetter barked about most lazar-like with vile and loathsome crust all my smooth body. This is the play's primal scene, to borrow a formulation from Freud's theory of trauma, a scene of traumatic invasion by the other, where the traumatised subject is overwhelmed and immobilised by a force that cannot be processed or integrated. There is indeed something peculiarly horrible about the idea of poisoning through the ear, the ghost blow by bow account of the stages by which the poison courses through the gates and natural alleys of the body, doesn't just describe, but actually repeats and reenacts this peculiarly intimate invasion of the body, working on and altering the very chemical composition of the blood, even as he speaks. The ghost's speech climaxes in that final image of extreme abjection as a loathsome crust of leprous scabs with a most instant tetter barked about all my smooth body. As with the ghost's previous speech about the effects of, of telling Hamlet of the secrets of my prison house of purgatory, something alien invades the vulnerable orifice's body, takes it over and deranges its processes. This literal poisoning through the ear, we are told, has already produced further metaphorical after-effects, as, quote, the whole ear of Denmark is, by a forged process of my death, rankly abused. The ghost relives this trauma, and in doing so, transmits its traumatic effects through the ear to the listening Hamlet and to the wider body of Denmark. Hamlet's response is to pledge a remembrance that will take over the entire content of his brain, or so he says. He will wipe everything else away, and thy commandment all alone shall live within the book and volume of my brain, unmixed with baser matter. This primal traumatic scene of bodily invasion transmitted to Hamlet through the ear will live on in sole command of his brain. Instead, however, of enabling Hamlet to act so as to eliminate this toxin, by exposing and bringing Claudius to Bacon's wild justice. What seems to happen, in fact, is the paralysis of Hamlet's very capacity for new action, and so his entrapment in a process of traumatic repetition. To remember the ghost for Hamlet is to relive the ghost's poisoning and to repeat its transmission. We get our first glimpse of this in the very next report we hear of Hamlet from the disturbed Ophelia to her father. My lord, as I was sewing in my closet, Lord Hamlet, with his doublet all unbraced, no hat upon his head, his stockings fouled, ungartered, and down givied to his ankle, pale as his shirt, his knees knocking each other, and with a look so piteous in purport, as if he had been lucid out of hell to speak of horrors, he comes before me. Ophelia, of course, doesn't know about the ghost, or his situation in purgatory, so her testimony is all the more powerful. It was, she says, quote, as if he had been lucid out of hell to speak of horrors. Hamlet appears as if a revenant from the afterlife to speak of horrors, but he says, or can say, nothing to her. The father's mortal trauma possesses the son. 
the deranged and speechless Hamlet has come to embody the ghost and to act out, but not to speak, the horrors he carries and transmits. Now it is the very same power of an invasive and traumatizing speech that we hear Hamlet aspiring to in his soliloquy at the end uh, of Act Two. You'll recall that Hamlet responds intensely to the player's emotional breakdown, in sympathy with Hecuba, over the horrors of the destruction of Troy and the killing of her husband, King Priam. The player has relived and recirculated this historic trauma through the heightened theatrical speech that Hamlet had remembered. One speech I chiefly loved. It was Aeneas's tale to Dido, especially when he speaks of Priam's slaughter. The scene of the murder of the king's father has riveted Hamlet's memory so much that he knows the passage off by heart. In the performance, the traumatic passions of the speech overwhelm and immobilise the actor. They break through the boundaries of fiction that would normally separate the imagined character of Hecuba from the real actor. The moment of breakdown is the actor's The moment of breakdown is the actor's identification with Hecuba, the wife of the murdered Priam, as the trauma of the old king's death and the queen's outburst of grief is reenacted and comes alive again in the present moment. Inspired and moved by this repetition of the trauma of Troy, Hamlet wishes to make the stage, the theatre itself, the very site of trauma and its transmission. Is it not monstrous that this player here but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, that from her working all he could force his soul so to his own conceit, that from her working all his visage wand, tears in his eyes, distraction in his aspect, a broken voice and his whole function suiting with forms to his conceit, and all for nothing, for Hecuba. What's Hecuba to him, or he to Hecuba, that he should weep for her? What would he do had he the motive and the cue for passion that I have? He would drown the stage with tears and cleave the general ear with horrid speech, make mad the guilty and appall the free, confound the ignorant and amaze indeed the very faculties of eyes and ears. Again we have the fantasy of the power of speech to invade and derange in a word, to traumatise its recipient, to cleave the general ear with horrid speech, make mad, appall, confound and amaze the faculties of eyes and ears. It is this compulsion to use the stage, to transmit and repeat the ghost's primal trauma that is the real motivation, I would suggest, for Hamlet's decision to put on the play within the play, the murder of Gonzago. I have heard that guilty creatures sitting at a play have by the very cunning of the scene been so struck to the soul that presently they have proclaimed their malefactions. For murder, though it have no tongue, will speak with most miraculous organ. The performance Hamlet imagines will strike to the soul and compel the secret criminal to proclaim his malefactions. But what will be speaking will be not so much the criminal Claudius but the deed itself, for murder will speak with most miraculous action, organ. The traumatic deed will speak in its own right and expose itself, compelling the guilty creature to speak against himself. What actually happens, however, when Hamlet stages the mousetrap, as he calls it, is rather different. No public exposure of the crime takes place. Claudius's secret crime and Hamlet's secret knowledge of it remain unvoiced, intact, withheld. Halfway through the performance, Claudius asks someone, somewhat warily of the play, is there no offence in it? And Hamlet replies, no, no, they do but jest, poison in jest. The poison is only a jest, but the jest is poison, and so, punningly, Claudius will ingest poison if he listens and watches. There will be no catharsis, no purging, no elimination of the toxin. The performance of the inner play secretly repeats the scene of Claudius's crime. The primal scene through the, through the figure of Lucianus 
the ear-poisoning nephew who aims, like Claudius, to seduce and possess the queen. This figure, as I've said, conflates Hamlet the revenging nephew with his poisoning uncle Claudius, and it has the effect of paralysing Hamlet's ability to act openly, publicly and cathartically. With this poisonous performance, the stage is no longer a place of exposure and public judgment, but instead it becomes a secret instrument of private vengeance, the site of a secret return to sender, an eye for an eye, an ear for an ear, poison for poison. The inner play's poison in jest returns to Claudius not visually, but through the actions of the dumb show at the beginning, but as Hamlet says, upon the talk of poisoning, that is, through the ear. It is no accident that, locked into this traumatic compulsion to repeat, to invoke another formulation of Freud's in the final scene, both Hamlet and Claudius die mutually poisoned in an exchange of poisons, and the delayed public exposure of Claudius's secret crimes, which has been entrusted by Hamlet to Horatio, is itself delayed and postponed once again to some future moment beyond the closure of Shakespeare's play. Thank you.